You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. You know, everybody's going to have their own distinct memories from these past 20 months or so of the COVID season. And one of the endearing ones for me will be having to watch sporting events with no one in attendance, which is very, very strange, right? Um, how strange it is when teams have come to count on the home field advantage. Now, it's a statistical fact that the home team, whichever sport, off, usually performs better, wins more often at home. Professional bookies, I hear, I just hear about this, professional bookies even factor this into their betting lines. They typically give three points to the home team, unless they're North Carolina. They could have used a lot more yesterday. So anyway, go Knowles, right? So Paul here is addressing, though, a group of people who had the home field advantage spiritually. These were the Jewish Christians who are part of the church in Rome. And they were looking around, and, and they were perplexed, I think. They were even doubting the purpose of God, I think, because even as God's chosen people, those who had grown up um, with the very blessings of being God's chosen people, they looked around, and guess what? There were, weren't very many Jews in the early church. It was predominantly Gentile Christians, and they began to ask themselves some hard questions. They begin to ask God some hard questions. You know, God, what, first of all, what, what's going on here? And, and is there, was there any advantage to being your people in such close proximity to some of the great miracles and workings that we find in the Old Testament? And guys, we might find ourselves asking the very same questions, right? May, we are those church folk. We are those religious folk. And many of us have a, a, a strong spiritual heritage and legacy. We, we've raised our kids in the church. Uh, we've been raised in the church. We've had a Bible our whole lives. We, you know, God has just been a part of our existence for so long. But yet we look around and we see those who've fallen away. We, I mean, it's just every day it seems like it's another Christian celebrity who's deconstructing, right, in their Christian faith. And we wonder, God, what is going on here? And Paul is addressing that very same circumstance. How does being a Jew, one of God's chosen people, how does that matter? How does that not matter? And how you answer that question is equally important. How I answer that is equally important and critical. Of what advantage do we have as the people of God? How does that work itself out? How does that not work itself out? How do we know the difference and how does it need to inform the way we live our lives? So we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 today. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read this together, verses 1 through, 9, uh, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew, Paul asked, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray one more time as we open God's word. Lord, we need your help. Um, These are the words of life. But Father, unless your Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes and our hearts and applies them and weaves them into our heart and lives, Lord, um, they'll fall on deaf ears. And Father, we acknowledge we need your word. We need this passage today. And show us how you want to speak to us through it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Take a seat. Verses 1 and verses 9 lay out the problem as clearly as could possibly be laid out. Look at verse 1. Paul says, what advantage has the Jew? And then he answers, much in every way. But then you read down a little bit and go to verse 9, and Paul says, are we Jews any better off? And then he says, no, not at all. Thank you, Paul. That was helpful, right? It's like, well, well, Paul, which is it? Is there an advantage of being part of God's people growing up in the church and all that stuff? Is there an advantage or disadvantages? And his his answer is going to be yes and no, right? As Paul is wont to do. And so to answer that question, Paul is going to use a rhetorical device that we call a diatribe. It's a literary technique, speaking, written technique of the ancient world where the teacher would set up a fictitious dialogue between themselves and their critic or themselves and their audience, and they would anticipate the question that's being asked and then provide the subsequent answer. And there's two things I want to draw your attention to in this particular text, and here's the first one. It's the first issue Paul addresses. Spiritual bloodlines, how they matter. Secondly, spiritual bloodlines, how they don't. And understanding the difference in those two things is our task this morning. Spiritual bloodlines, how do they matter? We said last week, as we were working our way through Romans 2, that the Jews were, in effect, the spiritual blue bloods of the ancient world, right? They laid claim to the greatest of all privileges. They laid claim to to verses like Deuteronomy chapter 4. Listen to that. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Those are rhetorical questions. The answer is nobody, right? The the Jews had immense spiritual blessings by being the chosen nation and people of God. When Paul gets to Romans 9, here's how he's going to describe this specifically. In Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites... And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. 
And we need to understand and situate ourselves in this story. Who are we? We are obviously the religious people. We are obviously many, many, if not most of us, growing up in the church with the blessings of the church, of the Sunday school teacher and vacation Bible school. And I said this last week, most of us have more Bibles than we have people in our house by a factor of four or five, right? And, and Paul lists out all of these blessings, and, and we, can, we can attest to the same, right? Had a godly heritage, or um, God brought people into my life um, when I was in college as part of my campus ministry, or so-and-so shared their faith with me, and we've got, my kids came to know the Lord through this church. I mean, on and on and on, the, the, the spiritual blessings of being a part of the people of God are immense. But if you were to pick one, one spiritual blessing, one spiritual benefit that sort of towers over all the others, what would it be for you? Well, Paul tells us what it is for him. He says, I'm going to distill all of these great benefits of being a part of the people of God. I'm going to distill them into one thing, and it's this one rubric which is going to give life to all the others. So let's look back at the text. He says, to begin with in verse 2, in other words, it literally means chiefly or primarily. The thing that rises above all others and encapsulates them. That's what Paul's saying. Let me tell you the great, ginormous benefit of being a part of the people of God. And here's what he says. He goes on to say, now, you have been given, as the people of God, the oracles of God. That word oracles, it's, it just means divine utterance or revelation. And obviously Paul is talking about the Old Testament generally and the promises of God specifically. And he's saying, in a sense, God has given us himself in his word. What you have in his word, the divine oracles, is the vo very voice and words of God. And now when it says that these oracles were entrusted... And John MacArthur makes this note. I think it's really, really helpful. That's in the past present participle, which means that what Paul is saying is that it was true for the Old Testament Jews, Israelites, at the time that it was given, but it has ongoing power and authority and life to the very present. See, and, that, and, that's, and that's substantially, hugely important to understand, that this word of God that was given in the past has an enduring inspired, infallible quality that makes it the word of God. God is speaking to us through his oracles. That's what Paul is saying. Now, I want you to think, though, of all the other things that Paul could have said, right, were blessings um, and being a part of the family of God. I mean, guys, Israel had a front row seat to so much amazingly cool stuff in the Old Testament, right? They saw David slay Goliath. They saw Elijah call fire down from heaven. They saw plagues come upon the Egyptians. For heaven's sake, they walked through the parted Red Sea. They were there when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But please understand this. As awesome as those events were, and, awesome, and, and amazing as they were, they happened in the past. Listen. But yet the reason they have ongoing spiritual power and authority for us is that God has given them to us in a book. 
God has said these aren't just distant historical realities that happened at some place at some time. They're like Aesop's fables. You learn some morals. You learn some principles of leadership. No, they have ongoing, enduring truth because they are the very words of God. Paul says all scripture is what God breathed, breathed out. And if having the Old Testament was a blessing to them, church, how much more? It's having the whole Bible to us, to ourselves in this day and age. Think about this for a second. The very men who walked with Jesus, the very men who were there when he was raised from the dead, the very men who testified to his resurrection, these men left the wit- their witness of Jesus Christ in these letters to us, which we now have. And God makes it very clear that the, f- the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Because we have the witness of God himself. And Paul says, this is the ultimate blessing and privilege that you have as being a part of the people of God. Think for a second who the most famous, and let me tell you why I think this is so important, this idea of God speaking. Think for just a second about the most, uh, most famous person you've ever seen in person. I like to tell people that Ronald Reagan spoke at my high school graduation, and he did, to all 4,000 of us all over the city. Um, We once saw Serena Williams traded by with her entourage. We were afraid to ask her for an autograph because we knew she would probably beat us up. But no one, no one holds a candle to celebrity sightings like my friend and fellow elder Pete Butler. Um, This guy has met everybody in the world, whether it's Lenny Kravitz, Black Eyed Peas, ZZ Top, Snoop Dogg, among the few that he's entertained, right? But what's more amazing and compelling than even seeing someone in person who's famous? It would be, right, speaking with them and interacting with them and shaking their hand and sitting down in the seat next to them on the airplane and having a conversation. Guys, that's what we have in the Word. We have the direct communication from the one who is the all-encompassing reality of the universe. It is here that God talks to us. By his word, we know him. By his word, we know ourselves. By his word, we know how these things are to come together. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you known that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As awesome as that event was in the wilderness, morning after morning where manna would appear on the, on the ground and the children of Israel would eat it, it was just a sign. It was just a pointer to the eternal word of God, which was made manifest in flesh with Jesus Christ and then was given to us and testified to us by his word. What do prisoners often hate more than anything else? Many of, many of them who've been in prison or were prisoners of war will tell you it's, sometimes it's being cut off with no voice. No one to talk to, no one to speak to, no one to listen to. John McCain, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam famously, talks about the intricate communication system that the soldiers came up with just to be able to have some sort of conversation while they were in solitary confinement. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this issue like this. He says, if the greatest privilege that can ever come to a man is to be spoken to directly by God, it is equally true that there is no greater loss that man can suffer than that God should cease to speak to him. Now, let's think about that for a second. Some of you might be thinking, you know, I'm thinking about these areas of my life. I'm afraid of what God might say. I'm afraid if I bring this to him in prayer, I, I don't know what answer he's going to get. Maybe he wants me to give it up, or maybe he wants me to do this instead of that. But what's more terrifying even than that is that God would say nothing at all. That's, that's the point of this. See, the most terrifying thing of all is not God speaking, it is God not speaking. Because without God speaking, we are left to our own devices, our own wisdom, our own strategies. We are wondering, we are aimless. And the prophet Amos talks about this perfectly. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. How is it that we have a famine of hearing from God? It's not because God has abandoned us. It's because we've abandoned his word. See, life without God and his word, Amos tells us, is despair. But because we have the word of God, we have gospel hope. Now, after Paul answers this question, so his his first answer to this point is, yes, there is an an amazing spiritual privilege. There's an amazing home field advantage by virtue of being raised in the church or raised in a Christian home or being here this morning. It was true for the Old Testament people. It's true for us that we have this. Now, after answering this question, Paul turns his attention to a set of corollary objections that these Jews had. Questions, which this is important to know, they're the same kind of questions we have about this. And Paul wants us to know that these questions only find answers, again, in his word. So look at verse 3. One objection was, well, Paul, if I'm unfaithful, does this nullify God's faithfulness? And some of you might be sitting here this morning saying, Pastor Paul, I've got to be honest with you. If it's, if it's through the word that God speaks, the Lord and I, and I have not been speaking for a long time. I have to, have to admit, I've, I've grown out of my discipline of reading the word. It's no longer a core part of my life. It's, I'm listening to a hundred voices, but, but not his. Does that nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul says, look, look in verse 3, absolutely not. Guys, thankfully not. Even if you have grown deaf to the voice of God, or maybe never even listened to the voice of God through his word, that doesn't have to be the rule. That doesn't have to be the, 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 your set point moving forward. This is why Paul gives us these words to remind us, church, we have the oracles of God. And the best place to begin is just right here. So that's one objection. Look at the second obje- objection, verse 5. Their reasoning was, if God can glorify himself through unrighteous deeds, does that mean he's not going to judge me or not going to judge sin? In other words, just because God can use sin for his good, does that mean we should just, we should go ahead, that God's not going to judge sin? And again, Paul's answer is no. 
And that's important for us to realize because justice is a big word today. Making things right that had previously been wrong. And here I'm talking about biblical justice, right? I'm talking about that God has committed to make everything right one day. God has committed to put, to get back together what's been broken into a complete whole. He promises to redeem this earth. He promises us to redeem our soul. It won't all happen in our lifetime. In fact, most of it probably won't. But the reason we don't give up hope is because the word tells us that God is not a liar. The word tells us that God is faithful. The word tells us that God will finish this work that he has begun. He will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so maybe there's for you in your life the presence of a massive injustice. Just a massive injustice. Maybe in your marriage, maybe in your job, maybe with your money, with your children, with your friends. Maybe there's been deep betrayal. Paul says, entrust it to God. His word tells us that he is faithful and that his faithfulness is not dictated by our faithlessness. And he is confident that God will carry it to completion, the thing that he began in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, trust God. Third objection, look at verse 8. Maybe that means we should sin anyway, knowing that God's grace will abound. Now, that, that was the rationale. Well, if, if God can do anything and everything, then we should just sin so his grace would abound. I love this. Paul's so disgusted by that question, he doesn't even give an answer. Do you notice that? He's just like, humbug, right? Like, you're condemned, you're hopeless, you're spiritually bankrupt. If I have to spend my time answering that question, of course, may it never be. What Paul is pushing us towards here is understanding what our posture is towards the word. And I'm using that word posture on purpose because I want you to get a mental image in your mind. If, if, if you were you and the word of God is the word of God and you were, and I was to catch a snapshot of you in the context of your everyday life, what would your posture of the word be? Would you be like laying on the couch with a remote control? Is that your posture? Would, would you be someone that you, you're walking around, you don't, even know, you don't even know where your Bible is? Maybe you're one that's hunched over on your couch with a reading lamp, reading his word late at night because it is your only hope in life and death. What is your posture, church, to the word of God? What's your posture in your marriage? What's your posture toward the word for your own personal heart in life? What about your children? What about your home? What about your community group? Use this rubric to ask yourself these questions. Have I been feasting on the famine of the word that God has graciously given us? Or is there a famine in the land spiritually? And guys, there's so many issues and problems in life that ultimately we don't have all the answers to in this life. But we do have answers to the most important questions that we have. They're found in his word. So Christian, what is your posture to the word of God? Again, Paul's, at, this first, at the end of this first point, what Paul is saying is, yes, amazing, amazing blessing by being a part of the, church, the family of God. Amazing blessing. And it's to our advantage. But secondly, Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand something. I, I want you to understand how this, is, how this doesn't work. All right? So 
what Paul has essentially been doing in these first three chapters is that he has been making, he's been prosecuting a case, right? That the whole human race, whether privileged, home-filled, advantaged Jews or pagan Gentiles, all stand under the just judgment of God. And so what Paul wants to be, make, it, make it clear here in verses 9 through the end of this text is that while the Jews do have an amazing home-filled advantage, and while we do have an amazing home-filled advantage by having a Bible, this does not mean that God gives us the equivalent of a two-touchdown lead. He does not give us an 80-meter head start on the way to 100 meters. See, look at verse 9. Paul says, but, but know this, church. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now that word under sin means to place beneath, to be enslaved to. And here is Paul's point. Here is Paul's point here. God is not giving religious folk bonus points on their quest to access God. Grace and faith are not being passed down by some sort of mystical, spiritual process of osmosis. This is not one of those, well, my daddy was a Christian, and that automatically makes me part of the club, too. Paul is showing us that while the word of God is an immense value, it doesn't guarantee you anything. It doesn't guarantee you salvation, Isn't it interesting that almost all of the Bible is written to the people of God? Calling the people of God to trust in the living God? And what Paul wants to do here is he wants to make his case that no matter who you are this morning, whether you've been in church all your life or this is your first day in church ever or for a very long time, he wants you to know we're all the same in this way. All of us desperately need Jesus. That's Paul's driving argument in here. And I want you to see how he he traces this argument out. He wants to show us the the totality of sin. Sin is not just a one of many problems that we have. Sin is not merely just bad things that we do or mistakes that we make. Sin is actually our condition. It's what we're born into. It's who we are by nature apart from Christ. And Paul, and the, and the, outline of this that Paul gives in this chapter is very stark indeed. Look at verses 10 and 11. First of all, he talks about what goes on in our hearts. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is Paul's way of saying that Our hearts, by nature, are inclined against God. That that of all the problems in our life, ultimately, whether it's what we say or what we do, what we think, what we feel, they ultimately germinate, germinate out of a broken heart, a dark heart that is not inclined towards God. So this is, so he starts inwardly. But look at verses 13 and 14. He says, now, let me begin to tell you the outward manifestation of a hardened heart. He said, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Talking about Instagram, right? Facebook? I mean, seriously. Um, if, if you haven't noticed, this season has not been wanting of words. 
everybody has had something to say. Everybody wants to say their piece. Everybody has their take. You want to post your opinion. And you want to post your opinion to someone else's opinion. And is it not mere coincidence, it's not mere coincidence, that the heart fuels the mouth, which infects relationships. Look at verses 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And they have, in the way of peace, they have not known. Because just a, a perfect description, let's be honest, of Western culture in this day and age. Where even among Christians, maybe some of the worst disagreements and conflicts and tension that many of us have seen, at least in our lifetime in the church, could be traced back right here, right? That the problem is not social media. The problem is not conflict resolution. The problem is the human heart. And only the word of God gives us our ultimate answer, which is the gospel. So the sum total, let me backtrack here for a second, of what Paul says here, what he wants to press upon us, is the, is the all-pervasiveness of sin. It's all-encompassing reality. And it's summed up in, in, one, in one sentence, I think, in verse 18. Look what it says there. And it's kind of in summary. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If you want to distill all sin down to one thing, It's about a fear or lack of fear of God. To quote Paul Tripp, what we have are not merely problems, we have awe problems, A-W-E. You see, when we become passive to the true and living God, when we become too nonchalant when it comes to the living and true God, when we forget that we are walking before the very face of God, our hearts are drawn towards other things. Our hearts are drawn to other objects of worship. And Paul says, that's your fundamental problem. There's no fear of God before your eyes. See, and for some of us today, one of the, one of the things maybe just to begin with on the most basic level is God, is this prayer. God, open the eyes of my heart to who you truly are. And guys, you won't find out who God truly is unless you are truly in his word. Read Isaiah 6, the vision and glory of God. Read Revelation 1, the vision and glory of God. Who God is, our only accurate record is here in his word. And what's interesting, look at verse 19. When Paul confronts the Jew and the Gentile, us, and the whole world with, the, with this compelling airtight case. Look at verse 19, what it says. It says, so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, it's, it's, it's Paul's way of saying, when confronted with this evidence, what choice do we have to be but speechless? Who, who is going to stand up and say, well, Paul, that may be true of all these other people. It may be true of my wife. It may be true of my kids. It's not true of me. No, Paul says, this is... This is This is Paul's way of saying, you've been caught in the act. You have no defense for yourself. You are exposed for who you are. John Stott says it this way. Every mouth is stopped, every excuse silenced, and the whole world, having been found guilty, is liable to God's judgment. What's Paul's grand point here? What's his grand aim? What? 
all of this is built to this one last sentence. Look at verse 20. This is, this is like Paul's coup de gras, cherry on top. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul says, before I get to the gospel, and this is where we're going next week, before I get to the glorious gospel, you have to know that you really need it. You have to know that you're really broken. You have to know that sin is just not mistakes you make, but it's actually the condition of your hearts. And when you see the heinousness of sin as depicted in Romans 1 through 3, then it's at that point that Jesus becomes glorious. Jesus becomes beautiful. You know, sometimes we hear in different segments of the church, we don't need to preach this sin stuff, Pastor Paul. People just need to be encouraged and they need to be uplifted. They don't need to hear all this bad news. Guys, if that's true, and you've heard me say this before, then Jesus will be very little to you except maybe a therapist, maybe a self-help guide, maybe a pal, maybe a companion, but he won't be your savior. And that's the place that Paul is driving us in this text. Now, of course, when the Romans were originally having this letter read to them, they didn't have to wait till the next week to get to verse 21, right? So I'll just go ahead and spoil it for you, but it's not, it's, it's not a bad surprise, right? It's the most glorious surprise of all that Paul says, it's the righteousness of Christ that you really need. Not your own righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ who freely gives it by faith to those who know they need it and to those who ask, those who turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Have you done that? I pray that you will. Let's pray.